If not, we're going to take a reading this morning from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Bear with me as we'll read a little bit longer than we generally do, but just feel inclined to do that this morning. Again, we're going to read from the book of Luke, chapter 24, and we'll begin in verse 1, and we'll stop at verse 36. Verse 1, now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came into the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. This is speaking of the, the women who came to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. And they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid and bowed down, their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of the sinful men, be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words, and returned from the sepulcher, and told all these things unto the eleven, and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and other women that were with them, which told these things unto the apostles. And their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. Then arose Peter and ran unto the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. And behold, two of them went the same day to a village called Emmaus which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. That's about seven miles. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that, while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. <clears throat> and now the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher, and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village, <clears throat> whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. 
And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. And they told what things were done in the way, and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. And as they thus spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And I'll conclude our reading this morning. It's reading Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 36. And if I made some errors in the reading today, please forgive me for that. The title of our message today is The True and Living God. The True and Living God. When I was younger, I used to dread uh, days like this. Easter, church, Christmas church. Um, those two in particular, I just I dreaded because I felt it though it was very predictable. Um, Judson, this morning, as we were driving over here for sunrise service, his exact words were, I'll bet you $100 we sang Christ Arose, the first song. Um, I didn't take that bet because I don't gamble, but I also didn't take that bet because he could have been right, <laughs> right? Um, because there are some predictability about it, right? And come Christmas time, often the preacher preaches on the birth of Christ or the wandering wise men, perhaps upon the book of Luke, the first couple of chapters where we have the most extensive Christmas story and Here we come to the end of the book of Luke, or probably in most churches today, 1 Corinthians 15 is going to be a popular text, and that caused me to kind of dread it a little bit, because what it gave the appearance of is that there was this coordinated attempt to carry out some ritual, some obligation, and we can tour the religions of the world, and what we find is that Certainly, there are days where they are compelled and required to focus on particular things, perform particular activities, and those forms and habits can be dead religion, observances that we feel required to do. But this morning, I want you to know that Everything that I do today is not compelled. It's 100% of my own volition. In other words, every Easter, I want to talk about this. Because the uniqueness of Christianity is found in what we observe today. So, Certainly, there are distinguishing marks from Christianity and Islam, or there's a Hindu temple down the road from our house that was recently built, or we could go and we could tour all the different religions of the world and certainly be intrigued by I was, as a world history teacher for a while, I was responsible for giving my students background on all of these religions, 
But I want you to know that what we observe today in Christianity is wholly unique to any religion, not only uh, presently, but any unique religion in the past. We celebrate today a God that we proclaim is alive. Now, again, because of the the culture at large and the lifestyle that many people have adopted, that even idea does not have as a resounding effect and impact upon our minds because in some way it's become this slogan. This culture that has grabbed a hold of Christianity and twisted and distorted and perverted certain things about it, there are many catchphrases in Christianity. And those catchphrases, unfortunately, dilute the elements of truth that are contained within those catchphrases. Or in other words, when you hear it being said in the right context, when you hear it discussed in the right way, it seems less powerful because you hear it so many times in the wrong context. But I want you to know this morning that as we gather together in this building, we don't have some God that is distant and far away. We don't, as Native Americans who previously occupied this land, or Greeks or Romans who perhaps built statues, and they say this statue is just merely a representation of a distant spiritual God far away. We don't believe that our God is like that. We believe he is wholly different. Perhaps the, the main way that he is wholly different is that we really believe, I really believe that God came to earth. Jesus was not just a good man. He was that. But in an attempt to pacify Christians, many people will acknowledge, well, yeah, he was a good guy. And yeah, I've read the texts of Scripture sometimes, and I, I see that there are, are proverbial truths that he has passed on to the world. That if you practice those things, they may lead your life in a good, happy direction. Or the new, newer trend, trend that people advocate today is, well, that's good for you. And if that makes you happy and that's your truth, then follow that and believe it. And and essentially saying by practicing this exercise, it will then grant me internal peace. It's more like Buddhism than anything. That's what Buddhism is, right? Buddhism doesn't even have a God. Buddhism is this way of being. And what Many people in our culture have tried to trivialize Christianity by saying, well, yeah, if you want to add some God to it, but really what it's about is to find a higher state of being, to find peace in your spirit, in your inner man. That is not what I'm doing here. We quoted this morning up at the cemetery something from 1 Corinthians 15, which said this, if in this life only... We have hope in Christ. We are of all men most miserable. If Christianity, if these people week in and week out, if I got up here week in and week out, 
And the end objective was to merely help us in this life. Then what Paul the Apostle was saying, perhaps the, besides Jesus, the leader of this sect called Christianity, both then and now, what he said was this. If that's the reason why we're doing this, then above all the people of the earth, we're the most miserable people that live. If it's just about this life. I believe there was a man, or let me back up. I believe God became man for real. Now, let me stop here for a moment and say, you can believe that aliens created the world. And that doesn't make it true. So what makes my claim? Of Jesus of Nazareth, that he was God in the flesh. Well, there's evidence. There's evidence of this occurrence. You see, because the world up to this time was a dark world, and you can go back and read any of the non-Christian historians that you want to, and leading up to this time, a, a, a real time in history, the world was full of darkness and sin that is even difficult to read if you decide to go and read, uh, for example, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbons, and you begin to pull through those pages. This is a secular historian, and as he lays out all the happenings, what took place in the Roman Empire during and before the life of Jesus, you'll see a dark world horrible place, full of death and manipulation, full of empires whose goal was about kings and, and, and power. And then there was this peasant. There was this man. And it's, it's interesting because regardless of your religious affiliation, regardless of your interest, Nobody can deny, nobody can deny the fact that somewhere back in three or five or ten, between that first century mark, what we would call A.D., this movement started that changed the world as we know it. Again, you don't have to be a Christian to think that. That's just an objective fact. Something took place at the turn of that first millennia that changed everything as we know it. And there was this sect of people that wrote down this book, this, these, these accounts. Now, they didn't come together and conspire together, and I'm not going to get into the historicity of the Scriptures this morning or why I believe the Scriptures are an accurate account, but suffice it to say, there were people that were eyewitnesses to Jesus. And they wrote things down about his life. They saw the things that they did, that he did, and many of them had every reason not to be supportive of this movement that Jesus had started. And what, yet what they claimed was this real historical man that they stepped into his life, or rather he stepped into their life, and everything about their life changed from that point on. Their aspirations 
their desires, their will, their very personality changed. And they marveled. They were intrigued by him. You ever been intrigued by somebody and you just, you wanted to know more? You know, here a few years ago, about, I don't know, five years ago, there was a man, Jordan Peterson's his name. And I heard him talking about some stuff. And I thought, ooh, man, this guy is fascinating. Not a Christian. But he was talking about some very heavy stuff. And suddenly stuff started going viral of him. Why was it going viral? What was it about? It's that he was saying some very unique things. And people wanted to know more. What is this man talking about? And they would buy his books. He had for a number of years the highest selling book in the world. Most copies of anybody. Because he was speaking some things and people were employing those things in their life and it was changing their life. And the more that it changed their life, the more they said, I want to know more. I want to hear more. See, what I really believe happened is that God came to earth. And God, knowing the hearts of men, knowing the truth about what has been, what is, and what will be, he came and as those that heard him in the flesh said, this man spoke like no other man. Even these people that we'll get to here in a few moments that were walking with Jesus along the way, that as Jesus spoke to them and he began to reveal things, you'll notice that in this narrative that Jesus asked this question to them. Basically, what things are you talking about? Explain more. And so they begin to tell of this account where Jesus, this man named Jesus came and he, he, he did all these things. And we really believed that he was going to be this prophetic leader, this Messiah that was going to come. And he was going to completely overturn the Roman rule. And he was going to be our, our, our leader. But he died. And Jesus says, essentially, well, you misunderstood it all. And it begins right there and he begins to teach him and explain it to him. And then finally, when they recognize it's him, they make these, this, this wonderful comment. Did not our hearts burn within us while he spoke to us along the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? You see, there was something that was entirely unique to Jesus. And that is, as I speak this morning, I do the best that I can to allow the spirit of God to guide me. But in the end, I'm a man with all the limitations of a man. Jesus was not just a man. He was God. And because he was God, nothing hidden was not revealed to him. And so we read throughout his ministry and out his life, people of all sorts of backgrounds, with all types of secrets, all all these various biases in their heart and in their lives, things which they wanted to hide or things they were proud of. Jesus would come from person to person and he had this uncanny, unbelievable way of speaking to the heart of a person and leaving them burning on the inside. And Jesus came. It was a real historical event. You know, sometimes one of the things that I don't like about our culture is that we, we have so much fantasy that we view. Like if you think about what you watched on TV last night, most of it was probably fantasy. It wasn't real. 
And the more sensationalized the fantasy, the more extravagant the falsehoods that are depicted as potentially real events, the more it dilutes the supernatural. Or in other words, when constantly our minds are exposed to fantasy, then when our hearts and our minds get exposed to something that really did happen but was supernatural, it doesn't seem as supernatural and phenomenal as what it was if we had never seen that fantasy at all. In other words, if you see a world of gray all the time and then all of a sudden you see a a color, you're probably going to be fixed on that color, aren't you? But if you live in a world where everything is glossy and bright and there's a color that gets put before you, it's probably going to have less of an appeal. Jesus, God on earth, came to the world and he died. I won't get into all the details about that because I want to get to our scripture text this morning. But he died for a purpose. And that is, as the song that we just sung, The Power of the Cross, so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. Every other human being in the world, death conquered them. You know, there are a lot of obstacles that we face in life, a lot of stumbling blocks that face us, a lot of enemies that we face in life. No enemy is greater than death. It is the ultimate enemy. And you come to learn that the more that you taste death in your life. When you have people whose fellowship is near and dear to you, whose Life and, and, and communion that you have with them is so deep. And then that enemy comes and pries them away forever in this life to be separated from them. And you begin to, to recognize the power of death. And it becomes a hard thing. And there are some people who either leave an abject fear of it or... They don't want to talk about it. They're dismissive of it. They don't even consider it because it's such a daunting reality. Well, here in the scripture that we read, it's of this event that we celebrate today where Jesus came and he died. And then he rose from the grave. Now, this morning, I want you to, I'm taking my time here, but Jesus, that was a physical person whose heart, physical heart, stopped beating, who was bloodied and battered and who people had to come and prepare his body for death or or for burial. And they went and they put him in a tomb. You know, up here in in the uh, graveside, my father is buried up here. And uh, me and a couple others, we actually dug his grave. Put the shovel in, took the dirt, And dug, and dug, and dug. That process, while performing that process, the depth of what is going on was magnified. Because as I'm going through that, you know, whenever you go through a normal funeral service, you have it, it's so nicely and neatly carried out. 
Right? We have a, a process whereby other people who are professionals come and they play it out. And so you have these emotions, but they're guided by people who know what's going on. And you get to the end and all the dirt's already dug. And it's such a, a quick and swift thing. But every shovel, every rock that I hit, the whole time I'm dwelling on what's happening. I'm going to put this man in the ground. And then you take dirt, put it over. Jesus Christ was a real man. Had a heart that stopped. Was put in the ground. And then like all funerals, what happened after that? Silence and mourning. Silence and mourning. Then, let me, let me say this for a moment as we look at this scripture reading today. Most religion that is practiced today is very dead. You go and you do the songs, you do the rituals, you do all the things. But what we're about to discuss here for just a moment gives us a living faith. We don't perform rituals, we serve a being who is alive. Here Jesus rises from the dead. And these women come to the tomb looking for Jesus. And they notice something that was left them at all. That big stone that had been there that was sealed by a Roman government official. It was now completely rolled away. And inside that tomb, there was no one. And so these women begin to panic. These women become afraid. What has happened? They begin to weep and to mourn. What has happened to the body of our Lord? And these angels appear. These people who have come to minister and to speak truth to them come and ask them this question. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is arisen. I believe today many people walk into churches. Many people seek out religion and they're seeking out something and they're seeking the complete wrong thing. They're looking for something that might give them a little bit of encouragement during a time of depression. They're looking for a way of life. Perhaps they've had a lifestyle that they have lived and they're saying, you know what? This lifestyle is not working for me. And I see some people who are Christians who seem to have a lifestyle that works for them. And this God thing is a part of it. Maybe if I add this God thing in the same way they did, that this accessory to my life will make my life a little better. Some people do it because of family. You know, mom and dad, they're religious and they don't get off my back. And so I'll do the religion thing occasionally just to satisfy the demands of other people. They're seeking religion. They're seeking God or that box in their life that people talk about God. They're seeking him for the complete opposite of what he is there to do. They came in verse 1, they came to the tomb to prepare his body. Expecting a dead man. And they came and found the exact opposite. This morning I would ask you, this box God, this box religion, what are you seeking whenever you come to this place? Like, are you thinking that because we sing these songs and because we we listen to this preaching for 45 minutes and because we do these, these set of things, that somehow that 
is going to have a fulfillment. Well, let me tell you, if that's what we're doing here, I want nothing of it. I don't want an empty performance of habits, things that have decorations of religion all over it. She came to decorate a dead body. And when she got there, something that the world had never seen was there. A living man who had died. She came and sought for Jesus. There's these messengers there. Now that's what the Bible says angels are. For all the mysticism in our culture today that talks about angels and all this foolishness that is oftentimes under the guise of Christianity that talks about angels. The Bible tells us the purpose of an angel is that they're a ministering spirit. Ministering means a serving spirit. So God is in heaven. He has these beings that he deploys at his own wisdom to serve and minister him or on his behalf. And in this particular case, These ministering spirits were sent to the tomb of Jesus because what God knew is that there were these people that would come to the tomb with one intent and they would be confused as to what was going on. And so he wanted to send these angels to give clarity, this is what is going on. This is what this is about. I would say today that his church, these people right here are in some sense meant to be that to the whole world. God has left people who know him, have been exposed to his truth in the world, not so that we can gain some cult-like following, not so that we can have a bunch of money pegged on a board, not so that we can grow like some business that has some uh, of these goals out in the world that we might applaud ourselves for how big that we've grown this religious business. None of those things to this people in this church matter whatsoever. We don't care about all of the visual things that so many people keep track of in regards to religion. We're here for one primary purpose, and that is to be a witness to the true and living God. When people come wandering in the garden of life, and they're saying, you know what? I don't understand this. And whatever condition that they're in, they're mourning, they're they're confused, whatever it is. God says, tell them the truth. Paul, whenever he was going to this church, he said, all I said to know among you was Christ and him crucified. Listen, I have not figured out some trick in life and neither have these people. God knows the truth of life and has showed it to us. Big difference. Right? Because whenever these religious figures get up and they want you to believe they get this cult like we were just talking in the fellowship hall yesterday about men who can lift themselves, in this, lift themselves up in this religious capacity and try to get this big following. And it has this real strange cult-like following where people think that these people are, are, are sacred and hallowed and there's something unique that they have figured out about the world or about religion. And they walk proud. That's not the followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus are people that said, listen, I I didn't figure something out. God did something to me. And all I can do is tell you about that. These people came to the tomb for a purpose. And Jesus was about to turn what they were seeking up on its head. Now, they have this experience where they see this angel 
and they get rather hysterical. They get rather excitable. I would imagine that'd be pretty natural, don't you think? If you saw some angelic being, how would you respond? Like if it was for real, not some book that's written to gain viewership, none of that. I'm saying you, all of a sudden, there's this appearance of what you perceive to be a celestial angelic being. And it speaks this message to you. You would probably do what these women did. You would find people who you think could make some sense of what you were told. And so you might go to some religious mentor. You might go to your parents. You might go to somebody who you say, you know what? They're a spiritual person. Perhaps they can give me a little understanding about what in the world is going on and what exactly I saw and what I heard and why Jesus is not in the tomb. And so they go back to the men who followed him throughout his life. And they tell him. And so you have this man arise in this narrative named Peter. He's all throughout the gospel accounts. And the one thing about Peter that I respect and identify with is that he wants evidence himself. Now, there are many people in religion today, I'm afraid, that have gotten exposed to a watered-down, shallow form of religion, particularly Christianity. You ever met those people that just seem plastic and fake? Those people who can repeat all these words and say all the right lingo and use the right vernacular and worship on the right days and say all the right things, but there is something, some intangible depth that is missing. And many people will get around those people and those people seem to be fake and they seem to be not real with what's going on in the world, naive to the suffering of the world, painting God to be some Christian Santa Claus. And you look at that and then you compare it to the hardships of real life and you say, those two things are not compatible. The way you're describing God and life is not the way it really is. And so many people say, you know what, based on the evidence that I'm given, this Christianity stuff is a joke. And if that was what I was trusting, is the words of many of those people, I would say, I agree. Most of the people who I most stringently disagree with in all the world have the same occupation that I do. So Peter, he's not satisfied with what he's heard. He said, I got to go see it for myself. You know... There's an element of Christianity. There's an element of people who try to, I'll say the word proselytize. They try to get more converts in. And what they try to do is they try to, first they try to hand out something and say, well, here's something to entice you. If you'll come be a part of this, here's all the good. The other people who try to argue in guilt, if you don't do this, here's what's going to happen. Peter comes to the tomb and he's just, he wants to see it. This morning I'm thankful that everything that we believe as a church and everything that we say the Bible teaches comes from a personal revelatory God. Or in other words, we don't have to just trust this antiquated account. And say, well, if you just put your faith in this Bible, that's what you have to do. You just have to put your faith in this man who's getting up and and telling you that it's true. No, you have the right 
to come and you want to see it for yourself. You want to know it for yourself. You hear about this man called Jesus and there are so many things about the story that seem so unlikely. And with that, I agree. God came to earth. He lived perfectly. He died on a cross and then he rose from death. How improbable. Peter comes to the tomb and he sees it and he walks away. And he says this in verse 12. Then arose Peter and ran into the sepulcher and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves and departed. Wondering in himself at that which has come to pass. So now he has this firsthand account. You know, the first step, it probably intrigued him what these women said. He had no, he, he knew these women. They were women who had traveled with him and with Jesus. Certainly, just like all of our relationships that we would have within this religious con- construct. You know, I trust you. But if you came to me and said that somebody up there rose from the dead, I'm not going to stand satisfied here in the pulpit. I'm probably going to head up to the, the cemetery. Because my trust, right? What's the old adage? Trust but verify. It's what I want to do. And so you go up there, and all of a sudden you notice there's a plot and it's open. Okay, well, I haven't seen the body yet, so I'm not sure. I'm just going to leave it with a question mark. You know, I'll, I'll crack the door open just a little bit for the possibility. And then on this narrative comes these other two men. They're walking down the road. And they're all focused on the events that had occurred. You know, I, I believe that there comes a point in everyone's life where God, death, where we came from, what's right and wrong, who we are, what our purpose is. You know those deep existential questions in life? A lot of times they come, I would say, in the middle of adulthood. And I think here's one of the reasons why you aspire when you're young and you aspire and you think marriage, children, job promotions, money, stuff, experiences, that will satisfy. And then you get some tastes of those things. And yeah, they, they feel good and you're glad that you did them, but you come back to this, yeah, but I don't feel satisfied. I feel like I want something more than just That. These men are walking down the road and they're focused on what's occurred. And they talk about it. And then Jesus begins to walk with them. Now, here's something that's very notable that I'll have you know. It was Jesus and it looked like Jesus, but they didn't recognize him. God kind of temporarily blinded them. Now, the reality of what happens in life sometimes, and whether you're a Christian or whether you've never been saved, irregardless or regardless, you you don't, sometimes God is doing things and you don't recognize it. Like there are providential occurrences that happen in your life. And in the moment, there's a peak of curiosity of, and a lot of times, you'll think, what a coincidence. You ever had those moments? Like, wow, that is so coincidental. I was just thinking about this topic, and then I was in this place, and this person began to talk exactly what I was thinking about. 
And then, and you have these moments where these things come to your mind and you think, well, that's just such, that's so weird. And maybe even a time you have a dream and you say, I was dreaming about that. That is so strange. And in the moment, at times we just write those things off. But what if God is there with you in those moments and he's just blinded you from recognizing him? My favorite is after those facts when I look back and I see it. And I think, you idiot, why couldn't you have seen that? Why did you write that off to coincidence? Why did you not appreciate? Why did you doubt what was going on? Jesus begins to walk down the road with these people. And I'll have you notice what he's not talking about. Shallow, flimsy, transient stuff. He's not talking about any of that. You know, religion, it's sickening today what false Christianity has made out the heart of Christianity to be. That it's something about, you know, you're living your best life now and feeling good and, 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 and finding all these things. And at the heart of Christianity is your happiness. Jesus isn't worried about these men's happiness. He's coming to talk about the core of it all. You know, I, I have a, a bias against preaching because I don't like shallow preaching. I don't like getting up and using one chant phrase and repeating it over and over again and thinking that it has some magical power in it and we're all just supposed to get all gung-ho fired up over some way of, you know, saying things. It just makes, there's nothing I would not rather hear than that. Jesus comes on this road with these two people, he blinds them, but he's there the whole time and he lets them speak first. He listens to them. Now, again, there's such, there's such power in this story. He asked them a question. You know, throughout the whole Bible, God asked questions. In the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, he calls out, where are you? I mean, an all-seeing God who's in all places at all times didn't know where Adam and Eve were at? Come on. He knew exactly where they were at. But the question was meant to produce a response in them. The question was meant for that person to allow the things in their heart to surface. And God has these ways of asking these concise questions that just gut punch us. Now what most people do, especially in our American culture, is that They ignore it. And what I would say is, I would advocate you a a way in life, not only in religion, but in all ways, is that when you have a problem in life, when you have lingering questions, when you have relationship conflicts, when you have all these things, don't avoid, don't run. Don't seek temporary pleasure to cover those things. Take it and face it head on. You have a problem in your marriage, sit down and get it out. Don't let it fester. If you have behavior problems in your kids, don't hope it goes away. Face it. If you have questions about life, if you have questions about eternity, don't think, I'll deal with this later. 
Whenever it's a more convenient time, I'll go after it. No, take it and face it. Because on the other end is a God who wants you to have a life of deep, eternal substance. He knows that the greatest things in life are deep, real things. Not the frills, not the decorations. Jesus meets these people and he speaks directly to the things they're questioning. Directly to their heart's desires. Directly to the things that they need to know to move on. And he talks. And we know from later, it's really resonating with them. I mean, it's really deeply speaking. Now, here's what I have found in those moments when I have a marital problem and we face it head on. It's a mixture of pain, enlightenment, a compelling to change, a facing of my own sin. There's, there's this mixture of, of, you know, when God confronts us with reality, you're going to feel a little pain. You're going to feel a little insecure. You're going to feel a little hopeful. There's a whole wide array of things that whenever you go and you want to face the God question, there are all these things that will flood you and will give you this desire in your fallen flesh to run away. And what I would say is this, take it and face it. Let it come to you. Let it hit you. These men said our hearts were burning as he spoke to us. And here's the wise thing that they did that most people don't do. Jesus was giving them the impression that he was going to continue to walk. He's going to leave them as they were walking. And they said, won't you stay with us a little longer? Won't you talk to us a little bit more? You see, they knew that something that this day and this man and this conversation was deeper than the normal days and conversations and men that they typically met. And so as they're going through this, they're saying, no, I want to stay in this place where I can have you speak down deep to those things which are the deepest concerns that I have at this moment. I want more of this. Most people are not noble enough to do that. And so what do they do? They walk away with their appetite whetted, but never satisfied. They get to this man, and he continues to talk to them. And then I'll have you notice something interesting. Jesus prays. He begins to address God. And as they listen and they watch the tone of familiarity was struck. I imagine it. It doesn't exactly give us their body language here, but I imagine it going something like this. They're bowing their head respectfully as he gives the prayer. And as he's praying, he's using words in first person. He may be even giving God thanks for helping him to endure what he's just endured. Perhaps Jesus in this prayer is blessing the food in a similar way that he had blessed the loaves and the fishes. They had seen this before. They had heard this. And the tone of familiarity is striking. And you ever have those times where you're kind of wanting to look at somebody 
you know, somebody's giving a speech or somebody's talking and, and you kind of make eye contact with somebody, like, is, is that person saying what I, are you thinking what I'm thinking about this? And I imagine as these men are walking with Jesus, they're bowing their heads and he begins to pray and that tone of familiarity gets struck and then all of a sudden they open their eyes and they know exactly who it is. And he's gone. He disappears. Jesus, here's what I want to say. He gave them a personal revelation. He showed himself to them. This morning... Here's what I'd advocate you don't do with this church, with any church, with any religion, with any f- person who says they figured out the, the secrets of life, any philosopher, any, anybody who wants to lead you. Don't take them for their word. Because your life here and in the afterlife will rise and fall based upon the accuracy of a mortal man. There was a, a cult one time that came to my house. I let him in and we began to talk. And I was a little familiar with the backgrounds of this cult. I knew who had started this cult. And I said at one point towards the end of our conversation, I just want to make sure that we're clear. If your cult leader is wrong, then everything you've just told me the last hour and a half is wrong. So you have placed... Your eternity and based everything about your future existence on the veracity of that man. And they said, they thought about it and they said, yeah, that's true. And I asked him, I said, well, did that man ever sin? Like, even if he was a a good guy, did he ever sin? Did he ever make a mistake? He said, yeah. I said, doesn't that concern you? Like, what if he was the most well-intentioned man in the world, but he just happened to get it wrong? So I tell you about these people that are sitting here. I tell you this about your family. I tell you this about myself standing up behind this book board preaching to you. I'm doing the best I can to reveal the truth the best as I know it. As a first-hand eyewitness to God speaking to my heart. But don't take my word for it. Go to the tomb yourself. Or in other words, here's what I would advocate that you do. You go and maybe you haven't prayed ever. Maybe you don't even know how to pray. You know, the God that I serve is a long-suffering, patient God, and he's not looking for every T to be crossed and every I to be dotted and you to conform your entire life perfectly to his practices before he'll listen to you. You don't have to bow on a certain rug. You don't have to bow at a certain time of the day. You don't have to have some address. Many times as I sat in church as a young kid, I would listen to these old men and they would address God with this flowery language and they would call him the almighty creator and they would quote from the King James Version of the Bible and they would say, thou, O God, and they would make it sound like some lofty thing that's required to speak to God. And I want to assure you this morning, none of that is required. None of it is. Many times when I address God, my clothes, my state of mind are not like a preacher. Let me go for it. The majority of the time, that's the case. I don't put on my little cloak, I don't put on my little enchantment necklaces. 
I don't have some kind of formula. I don't have some kind of pre-planned introduction of what I'm going to say to God and, and how I'm going to address them in this flowery way. I don't. I come to him and I ask God generally, Lord, help me to talk to you. I want to be able to express these things in my heart to you. And I talk. I talk to him. And sometimes I have questions and I want an answer. Let me rephrase that. I need an answer. Like I, I, it's not a it's not a situation where I can't hope. I've got to have an answer. I could use the example whenever I didn't know if God was real or not. You know, you're praying to be saved and you don't know if he's real and I'm saying, listen, I'm not going to walk away from here calling myself a Christian saying that when I die everything's okay if I don't know that as a fact. Right? Unless I've seen it, unless I've known through my own experience this to be the case. And what I believe about the God that I preach to you this morning is that on our end, I desire to have God revealed to me. And on his end, he desires to reveal himself to me. What a wonderful combination. That when an honest heart comes before God and says, God, I've heard the witness of the people who say, God is a living God and blah, blah, blah. They feel good and they sense peace and blah, blah, blah. They feel all this love. And, and, and you, you, you begin to write it off a little bit and say, I've heard all these things. Just like Peter had heard from these witnesses. Just like Peter. And then he ponders it and he thinks about it and it lodges there and he's curious. And then these men from Emmaus show up that had just been with Jesus. And they come to the apostles and they, they second what they had already heard from those women. Now Peter's saying, well, is it possible? Because the people, no doubt, he was reminded Jesus did say he was going to die. And three days later, he's going to rise again. And this is how I'm going to close my message this morning at the very end of our text. As they're there discussing the matter. Listen to this. As they're there discussing the matter, Jesus appears. I love that. I love, like, that account of what takes place right there, let me just tell you, is the God that I know. The times where I've been down laboring in prayer with pain and sorrow, you ever felt like, and this isn't true, do you ever felt like that you have such strong emotions you don't have control over them anymore? Like, you ever been angry? You know, this is especially true, I think, again, of my boys. And, you know, sometimes after they've reached out and punched each other or fought each other or got on top of each other and, and really wrestled around, I'll get on to them. And, and especially with, well, two of them, they say, I, basically, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> like, they're the victim here, you know. Like, I had no choice but to punch him because something came all over me and I just couldn't control it. Right, we have these powerful emotions and this powerful state of mind, darkness that covers our minds and covers our hearts. 
And in prayer, there have been times in my own life where that's where I was. I was in this place of what, what I perceived to be uncontrollable anxiety. Some of you have had anxiety attacks, panic attacks. Some of you have been so depressed, you've thought of the most awful things you could ever do for yourself. And you, you go and you know, I've been told i got to go to God. I've been told i got to go to God. I've been told that he's real. I've been told he's, he speaks. And you go down and you begin to pray. You explain to me what happens when this happens. I'm down praying to God. I'm overcome with this powerful things that I have the sense are just beyond my control. And then all at once, all at once, peace fills me. Get out your psychology book and told me, tell me what happened right there. And why is it that that peace comes when I diligently, you know, there are times when I call out to him and it doesn't come. It's not this clockwork thing that I just have some, you know, thing figured out that I can just knock on God's door and then all of a sudden it just comes. That's not how it works. I'm saying there are times where I get so desperate and then all of a sudden peace floods me. And I have this sense in the deepest part of my being that there is a presence with me. There's a theory of Jesus' appearances it's called the hallucination theory. That's how historians have written off the possibility of what happened. What they say is this. Yes, I really believe that Jesus was a real man. And yes, I believe that these people think they saw Jesus. I really believe that. But all of those people did in a sense see him, but it was all hallucination. Okay. I might be able to buy that with one person. But here's the problem with this story in this text. This hallucination occurred, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, to over 500 people. 500 people supposedly hallucinated in the same way about the same person giving the same story And in 1 Corinthians 15, decades after this appearance happens, their story remains consistent across all 500 people. That's why the Apostle Paul, when writing the Corinthian church, says this. Jesus appeared both to the women, to the apostles, and to more than 500 brethren, the majority of which are still alive to this day. You know what he's telling them to do? Go ask them. Go ask them. They're still alive today. Listen, this morning, you're sitting amongst a group of people who believe that God speaks. God is alive. And that when you pray, God can overwhelm you with his presence to leave you no doubt, not only of his existence, but of his care for you. So we leave this Easter morning and we say this. Don't believe me. Go try it. 
And what you find is the people who pursue him the most, the people who desire to go back to the tomb the most often, are those to whom which Jesus appears the most. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. God, over and over in the Scriptures, tells you, put me to the test. Put me to the test. And if you have an honest heart in doing so, I have no problem in proving myself. This morning, the end goal of my message today was to say, we serve a living God who will let you know that he's alive. We don't come to celebrate some abstract concept that Jesus died and that he rose again. And that that's some cute idea that some man in a novel wrote. No, we take it a step further and say, you want to know that he's alive? Go ask him, and he'll show you. I'm thankful that my my faith is predicated on a living person, not a dead creed. This morning, if you've never come to know him, I pray sincerely, I really pray that if God, over these next days and weeks, comes to you and joins you in life like he does these men on the road to Emmaus, and you begin to contemplate these deep questions of life, where you're headed after this, don't run away. Seek him until you can find him. That's our message this morning. We serve a true and living God, and I'm grateful for that. Someone.